Welcome to another episode of the Eccentrics with UI, where I have conversations with individuals that have the following three guidelines, such as they have traveled a fair bit, they have created a money-making venture, size of that venture is irrelevant, and lastly, they are willing to share a destabilizing event that occurred at the time and how did they rebound from that setback. Before we go into today's episode, I wanted to notify you that today's episode is sponsored by Three Nuggets Wednesday, which is a weekly newsletter that comes out every Wednesday, capturing three things that I found interesting and valuable during the previous week and sharing them with you hopefully for it to add value in your life as well. And if you want to get access to this newsletter, you can visit the website www.uiukpong and insert your email address in the pop-up and you will receive this weekly newsletter every Wednesday. It's very straight to the point. Um, it's recommendation of books, songs, videos, exercises, anything that adds value to, oh, I found very interesting the previous weekend. I'm just sharing them with you. If you do enjoy the newsletter, please share with a friend or share with someone in your network. And uh, thank you for enjoying the newsletter. Any feedback is also uh, welcome. You can send me an email to hello at uiukpong.com. Now, let's get into the show. For today's episode, we have my friend, Larry, on the show. Larry also goes by the name Hakim. Most people know him as Hakim, and those that know him as Larry were those that went to high school with him, which I did. So who is Hakim? Hakim is a father, a brother, and a businessman. Uh, he currently runs a fashion brand with his business partner called Farihara. The brand was founded in 2016. He would get to share more light on how this brand was founded and what it has grown to become in the last uh, six years. He's heavily involved in the Calgary community by volunteering his time to local charities. Um, I call him a social butterfly because he's someone I go to when I'm looking for a particular talent with a particular skill set, and he always seems to know who to call. So I hope you will enjoy my conversation with my friend, Larry. Hello, hello, hello. Good afternoon. Greetings from Calgary. Uh, it's about... Uh, it's about 1.30 here in the afternoon, and I've got a very, very close friend. As I always start when I'm talking to someone that I've known for a while, I always give that full disclosure. I've known this man since high school. He's one of the funniest, people's, <laughs> funniest people I have in my network. He's very, very witty. And uh, if you ever get to meet him, just tell him, I heard that you're very funny and witty. Bring it out. But nah, he's also quiet too. So I've got Lanray. And most people know him as Hakim. If you call him Larry, that means you've known him for a long time. If you call him Hakim, that means you've just known him. 
So I've got the benefit of doubt to call him Larry because we went to high school together and uh, he's very personable and I'm very happy that he's come on the show. So Larry, welcome, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, you're right. Uh, people that <laughs> just recently, uh, I guess people that have known me in the last 20 years, uh, they know me as Akeem, but uh, for those who have known me longer than that, uh, they you know, they go by Larry. So I'm very happy to be here on the show with you. Fantastic. Now, I'm going to start with that actual question because it's something that has crossed my mind. Why didn't you carry Larry with you? Why did why did you resurrect or bring out Hakim? Because Hakim is your name, but why did you decide to create Hakim? Because we know you as Larry all from high school and stuff. Why didn't you keep Larry with you? Um, so, so coming down to Canada, uh, uh, as you know, I moved here uh, after high school. Uh, when I finished high school, I moved to Canada. And believe me, I started using Larry when I moved here first two weeks. And I noticed uh, folks in my university class, uh, by the way, I went to University of Windsor, uh, the non-Nigerians in my university class, including black, white, um, Arab name, um, they will call me Larry. Um, oh. and I wasn't really pleased with that. And of course, you can only correct one or two people that you're close to, you know, the professors calling me Larry. So I just decided, okay, it's time to bring back uh, Hakim. And yeah, so Hence why I go by Hakim here. So, so, so Hakim, Hakim was never used during your time in Nigeria or even your childhood or anything? It's funny. Um, so it's a bit of a back and forth. So in my primary school, uh, in my primary school, uh, I went by Hakim. At home, they called me Hakim. My grandma oh. called me Hakim. It wasn't until I got to high school that we went together that um that i came changed to larry and now that there's a story to that um i was beginning to embrace christianity and i wanted to be identified as a christian and why larry um was i allowed you know larry to be used but like, yeah that's that's a story for another day no, no, it's not a story for another day, if you don't mind. I, so you decided to embrace Christianity and then you resurrected Larry. And, and, and Hakim was the name that your parents' grandmother called you because we, you were born into a Muslim family, I take it. Yes. So when you decided to take on Larry, that was you. Is it, would you say changing to become a Christian or that was you starting to think differently? That was me starting to... Think differently, and also, um, as we both know, back home, the name Hakim, even outside of Nigeria, is synonymous with being Muslim. And some people still call me Muslim now. I don't. I'm not uh, not angry about it, or I, I don't feel some type of way about it. Uh, but as the trajectory of my religious life uh, changed when I was in high school, from being uh, Muslim to Christian, I embrace Larry. Um, now, 
in my documents, it says Hakim Olari Waju, which is Hakim Larry Lawa. Okay. So um, I just, I don't even know where it started, the Larry in high school, but that just became my name in high school. And I, you know, I was okay with it, especially with uh, my newfound religion then, which is Christianity. Was there friction when you started to embrace Christianity amongst your family? Yeah, yeah, um, there was. Uh, being the first person in my family line, uh, mother's side, father's side, everyone, all, I mean, uh, they were all Muslim. I, if I remember vividly, I think I was the first person in my line of generation to switch from Muslim to Christian. So there was some friction. Uh, and of course, because I lived with my mother, there was some friction between I and myself. I was kicked out of the house. Uh, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, um, I was, uh, I believed in my decision. And, you know, over time she got over it and uh, we just made peace. Mm. So, so why did you, st okay, I'm trying to understand that, that transition. What did you, what made you start to think that, you know what, I want to make the switch to become a Christian or to be identified as a Christian? So having been, I mean, I was raised in a Muslim home. Uh, I went to Muslim school in, uh, uh, in the city that I was born in Ibadan, which is uh, 45 minutes to an hour outside of Lagos. Um, everything that we did while I was a young man was very, very strict. We had to wake up, pray. Um, so I did that till I was about 14 or so. And in a moment to Lagos, and when I was uh, 15, uh, moving to Lagos and also going to a Christian school, a boarding school, um, I just realized and of course, it was a Christian school that we went to. Um, I just realized there was another way for me. Um, I felt more comfortable praying to God and having a relationship. I felt like I had a direct relationship with God. And, you know, um, I guess in high school, I, I struggled a lot in high school. Um, so praying to God and just kneeling down and praying and just having a conversation and having a relationship with God. I felt more comfortable as a Christian than as a Muslim. Now, there's nothing wrong. I know people that were younger than me uh, or that are younger than me that are Muslim that, that feel the same way when they pray to God. But because I was born in a Muslim and I was forced to participate and do things, it was very regimented. Um, it was very strict. I didn't feel like I had a one-on-one -on -one connection with God. But, you know, the Christian school that I went in high school just gave me that platform uh, to really build my relationship with God. And that's why I embraced Christianity. And up, up to today, I don't have any issue with folks who are Muslim. As a matter of fact, I can't stand people that put one religion over the other. Mine just happened uh, 
based on the fact that I was struggling then and I felt like I needed to have a one-on-one relationship with God and the Christianity gave me that platform. So the question that I had when you were just describing this is you were raised Muslim, you went to school, to Muslim schools in Ibadan, which is primary school and kindergarten probably. And then secondary school, why did your mom or your parents decide to put you in a Christian school? Good question. Um, some of the struggles that I went through uh, as a kid, um, I I was not always a good student. Um, I think I was behind, I was far behind the eight ball line uh, with folks that were the same age as I was. And when I moved to Lagos, I couldn't speak a word in English. Um, I was 15, I couldn't speak a word in English. And I was in GSS2, and that would be, GSS2 would be what's grade here. So probably be grade, uh, so take 12 minus 6, grade so 6. Grade, grade six, 6, grade 6, grade 7. Yeah, about, uh, yeah, 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 grade 6, grade 7, wait, grade 1 is your 5 when you're in grade 1, right here? So 5 plus 10. So it would have been grade nine around that. Right, let's just say, let's just say, uh, me, uh, they call it middle, middle school. Yeah, middle school. I could not speak a word in English. And uh, my mother moved me from Ibadan. Then I was in grade nine. I was, I was getting promoted from, you know, one class to the other when I was in Ibadan. But I couldn't speak a word in English. And my mother wanted me to get the needed help that I, uh, that, that I, that she could get for me. And she found the high school that we both went to. And I remember doing the uh, exam. I think she actually found three schools, three private schools. She was bent on me going to private school because she felt that was the only way that I could get the help. And I screwed up all the entrance exam. Like I remember getting two out of 100 in math. No way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Getting two out of 100 in math, five out of 100 in in, in English. I, I just screwed up. Like, the worst results you've ever seen in your lifetime were my entrance exam. And, you know, the school decided, look, this kid is way below the standard for us. I don't know how my mom pleaded with the owner of the school. Um, she took it as a personal challenge to have me enroll in the school and made uh, promise to my mom that she would do everything to help me. Uh, so that was the only school that admitted me, let's put it that way. <laughs> That was the only school out of the two, the two others. Say three, there were three, including yeah. this one. Yeah, no school. And, no and, school. and, 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 and let's, let's give a shout out to that school because both of us went to that school. So that, that shout out is Distinguished College. Distinguished College, yes. I, I also want to give a big shout out to proprietress, Mrs. Adela Kun. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think, I think um, Distinguished College for me was a school that brought together misfits and turned them and made them wholesome beings. Because yep. there were so many of us that came in there, including myself. You know, I failed 
my YEC and my colleagues were entering year one in university and I came to Distant Medical it taking two years backwards. And then look at me now. So Distant Medical just had a way of bringing all these misfits together and producing wholesome human beings. So, so you, out of the three that your mom had shortlisted, the other two said, no way. But Distant Medical said, we will take a chance on you. Yes. And uh, uh, let me just give you, and this is one of the stories that, I've, I've told a few times. I remember that day, that particular day that I did the entrance exam uh, at the school. Immediately I was done. They presented my result to uh, Mrs. Adelakun, our proprietress. And she looked at my results, uh, UI. Um, I remember it was my uncle that uh, took me there for that, that day. She looked at all the results and she looked at me why my uncle was there in our office and said, young man, what do you, what exactly do you want to be in life with this result? Now, mind you, I didn't speak a word in English, not even in pidgin English. Everything was Yoruba. I didn't understand anything. You are my response to her was, yes, ma. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm laughing because you're very funny. <laughs> so I'm laughing because of the Larry I know. <laughs> but please continue. You are that stood out. Oh. I can never in my life forget that day. Upstairs in our office, young man, what do you want to become in life? And I say, yes, man. Because yes, man was the only thing I could say. Yes. No, go, calm. Those were the only words I, I knew. Didn't necessarily understand. Because if mm. I understood what they meant or what they mean, I wouldn't have responded, yes, ma'am. Mm. But those were the words that I knew then. Yeah. So to answer your question, why Christian school? That was the only school that took me in. That is crazy. You know, it's funny. Your story is similar to mine. I remember when my dad took me to this Timmeda College and I met Mrs. Adelakon for the first time. You know what she told me? She said, don't sit down, stand up when I'm talking to you. And I was like, man, I'm in a military school. But I think it was the best setting I needed because of the way I was, you know. So it's funny. So I'm, I'm going to stay here with two out of 100 in math and five out of 100 in English, which is crazy. How was your time... Because I, when I met you in this Timberland College, it was we, were, we met at SS2. And I think you joined this uh, Timberland College JS2, right? Yes. So how was, how was your first time in this school, Christian school? You don't speak English. Now, the benefit you have is you're in Lagos. Most people speak Yoruba in Lagos. But when you go to a class setting, they're not writing in English. How did you cope? Um, it was it was some of the most difficult period of my life. Uh, but what helped me, UI, um, it was difficult to communicate with. And mind you, I was I was supposed to be going to GSS three based mm. on my age. Sure, sure. Or SS one. Two years I was supposed to be going to SS one or GSS three based on my age, but the school could not do it. 
because the standard, my standard was very, very low. Um, so starting at the GSS2, I could not, um, I couldn't communicate with the, with the way my peers, because I was older than many of them. Mm. Um, I was older than many of them. Um, being in the boarding school, I couldn't speak English. I was picked on most of the time. Then I had some other problems I was dealing with. Um, so it was it was some of the most difficult period um, uh, that I experienced. However, I knew I was behind the eight ball. I knew I had problems. And wanting to get to the bottom of that problem, wanting to at least make my mother proud, gave me the resilience to continue, regardless of the problems I was going through, whether students speaking on me, whether I was the bottom of everybody's joke, I just wanted to make my mother proud. And yeah, that's, that's what kept me going, you know, despite uh, uh, all the, uh, uh, all the struggles that came with it. Yeah. How, when did you start to feel that you could see the light in the end of the tunnel? When did your math start to improve? When did your English importantly start to improve? Is it by now communicating in an English speaking environment predominantly? So, um, first thing, shout out to my mother. She's no longer with us now. Uh, shout out to her. Um, one of the things that she did was to make sure that during the long uh, break, um, she kept me in the school, in the boarding school. Um, I was, I never went home. I was the only student in the entire school when every other student went home. Um, she was paying teachers extra to come to the school, to come to the boarding school. So imagine sleeping in the entire boarding school by yourself. You know, many times proprietors will, you know, uh, have me stay at a house. But most of my time I was spending in the boarding school just by myself with teachers coming. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was worse. Now that I'm explaining it, it sounds very, uh, imagine being in class, being taught math, and the teachers knew that you didn't understand what they were teaching. And one teacher in particular uh, clowned me one day in class and said, hey, I need you to answer this, but I'm not going to ask you in English. I'm just going to ask you Yoruba. Everybody's uh, like, oh, no, <laughs> no. So I went through, I went through those faces. Uh, but to answer your question, there was one particular moment that I don't know whether, you know, when you speak something to, to live, um, one of my favorite teacher was leaving the school. I think I was in GSS, GSS three, uh, first semester of GSS three, um, English teacher. Uh, he was one of those teachers that really took his time. He would come to the school, uh, even during the, you know, during the break, he would come. I think he was more consistent than any other teacher. Um, he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. I, he will come. Of course, I was still fail his class. I was getting 13 Fs out of 
14 classes. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have those results here to just, yeah, yeah. 13 Fs out of, you know, 14 classes. It was living the school, just to cut the long story short, it was living the school. And I wanted to say something so bad to him, but I didn't know what to say. I didn't speak good English there. Um, the gate man, uh, the security guy for the school was my one of my closest friends because he, he was the one that I could relate with. He spoke Yoruba to me, so it became my good friend. So I went to sit, I went to sit down while all the other students were saying bye to him. I went to sit down by the by by the security uh, guy's office, waiting for him. And as soon as he got to the door, I memorized what I wanted to say. And by the time he appeared, I didn't remember what I memorized. But uh, God just put some words in my head that I verbalized. And I, I said to him, Mr. Deniji, I wish you could stay to see what I will become in this school. Hmm. And you are, after that day, everything in my life changed. Yeah. Hmm. So, so was, was Mr. Denji always speaking on you or what? No, it was the most consistent teacher. It was our English teacher there. It was the most oh, consistent teacher. Consistent in a good way. In, in a, a good way. way. Like, it, oh, it was okay, okay, very okay, consistent. Okay, okay. It calm. Like, it, it, it came during the uh, break more than any other teacher. Putting time, teaching me, it's not something I didn't see in myself. And as a matter of fact, I, aside from, you know, giving God the credit, my mother, um, um, Mr. Denny G, and, some of the, and most of the teachers, even the ones that were not, you know, that I didn't feel like they were fully there, I still give them credit for it, for some of the extra time they dedicated to, you know, making sure that I'm, I become the man that I am now. Uh, but I have to say, I started learning poetry uh, at Mr. Adeniji's class. And poetry, reading poetry, classic, classical poetry, writing, poetry gave me an avenue like give me a platform to express myself. And I think that was the beginning of the change in my life. Did you ever reconnect with Mr. Denigy as an adult now? No, I didn't. Like ever since I left high school, we just lost connection. So I'm not reconnected with him. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's funny that people don't realize that the effects of a teacher could really set the the outcome or the future of a child. When I was in a primary school, I remember Mr. Fiamy. I will never forget that man because uh, he was a PE teacher and he used to teach me how to sprint. And now when I run, I always think about him because I'm like, he, he always said, you I never allow your foot be flat on the floor, always be on the toes. And when I run, I always remember that man. And this is primary school, primary school, you know? So it always takes one teacher out there to always just do something that you never forget. So like, look at Mr. Denigy now, and it's going to be interesting if Mr. Denigy even listens to this or someone in his network 
forwards it to him, it would just probably say, wow, he, he made an impact. So, so when Mr. Adeniji left and you said that to him, that is when things started to change for you. Then we met in SS2 and you spoke very good English when I met you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when Mr. Adeniji left, um, I remember, remember in, in, in Nigeria, when you're in GSSC, for you to go from a junior to a senior, you had to go through a national uh, test mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. the GSSC. Um, I did a GSSC. Um, well, not, not, there was a test we did uh, to go from GSS3 to SS1. The internal yes. test before the GSSC, yeah. I performed well. And of course, that performance itself was not up to par if you look at the average performance, but it was my best performance ever. So the school gave me a chance and promoted me on trial. Um, then they gave me the, the, the most improved student in the school. So, 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 so sorry to interject. So you did very well with the internal JSSE, which I know most schools do that before they allow you to go take the national. How did you do on the national? On the national, I think the recognition, the most improved, that was my first time I ever got any academic related award. Wow. Um, though, again, when I look back, the award was to encourage me because it was my best performance. They gave me the most improved student and that made an impact on me. Mm. When I did the national test, I did well. Mm. And that was the beginning of the change. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. So now you get into SS, I meet you in SS2. There was a question that Mrs. Adela Kun asked you, a proprietor asked you, young man, what do you want to do with your life? At this moment in time in SS, because when you're in senior secondary school in Nigeria, unlike North America, the pressure is real on you to be able to start to think of a career. You know, I I found it very strange when I came to Canada and you meet someone in year one or year two. What do you want to do? I'm still figuring it out. In Nigeria, you don't have that opportunity because you do jam. If you finish jam, jam, your result in jam determines your future. (laughs) And then here you're entering entering university in Canada and you're like, you don't know what you want to do. So... That question that proprietors asked you, young man, what do you want to do with your life? Now you are in senior secondary school. Did you start to articulate what that could be at that time? Um, yes, I wasn't necessarily thinking about the question itself, but as I got to the scene, as I got to uh, SS, you know, which was a senior secondary school, uh, I had already figured my strength. I was, I was a better art student okay. uh, and of course in, in in my family then since I was younger since I was four everybody had always low-key called me a lawyer because I was that kid that would listen to two sides and listen to my grandma I was raised by my grandma I'll listen to my grandma and I'll tell grandma and she was wrong I was not I was never afraid to look at, to listen to two stories and just speak my, my honest truth. So they, everyone was always calling me a lawyer and that stood with me. Uh, so I, you know, going to SS, 
I wanted to be a lawyer. And I came to university here, wanting to be a lawyer, yeah. Okay, I think that's a very good place for us to take our first water break. And uh, we will come back with, uh, well, let's call it Larry for now. We're gonna come back with Larry to continue the conversation on how he transitioned into Canada and that story. So we are back with uh, Larry, also known as Hakim. And where we left off was uh, Larry was basically telling us how he had now started to formulate this aspect that he might be a lawyer because of what the feedback he was getting and the way he was navigating life. And we're just about to now transition when he's coming to Canada. But before we come to Canada, my question is, how was um, your final years in Disney Medical College and what kind of memories do you have in Disney Medical College? Because I remember you in Disney Medical College. We used to play soccer together. You were very, very good in football. And man, you were, missed, you were one of the funniest guys I know. This funny side of yourself, have you always been like this or very witty, to be honest with you? Because, because you said when you first came, you didn't speak English and people used to pick on you. Now you speak English and now you're making everybody laugh. So where did this funny side come out? I mean, you're an extremely funny guy, man. Well, um, I think I'll say it's genetic. I got it from my mom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. I got it from my mom, but I, you know, when I when I eventually broke away from being the bad student or the struggling student, I mentioned earlier that poetry played an important role in my life. Um, being able to just, once I understood or once I got that platform to express myself, poetry became my playground. Being able to play with words um, became something that was I was infatuated with. And, and that, for me, is very integral to uh, the wittiness, uh, and also, my mother was very personable. Um, if you think, if you think I'm witty, funny, if you met my mom, you know that yes, maybe I'm just I'm just beginning to learn walk. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I see. The, the, the apple did not fall far from the tree. No, not at all, not at all. And you know, and, and I think we live in a world where every everyone, you know, sometimes we can be into ourselves and sometimes we we go by what we feel the world accepts and and sometimes that can put us in positions where we're not as forthcoming in terms of being personable uh and for me i always just want to break the ice with people let's let's move past this I mean to myself, like, let's find a level where we can actually relate, you know, find something we can break the ice because uh, there's more that we can enjoy from having a conversation, laughing with each other than, you know, just being into ourselves and not, not being personable. So I believe being personable, it just, it helps with a lot. It has opened so many doors for me in life that, uh, and, you know, I've made connection with lots of people. Uh, so 
I enjoy, I enjoy it. I don't, I, you know, it's not something that I fake. It's just, it's just my personality. And, it, and it's your strength. I mean, we spoke two weeks ago and I told you that you're this kind of guy that I can see walking the streets and you can literally remove your shirt and give a homeless person. And then you even said it that day, you said, it's something that I learned from my mom because you saw an, you saw an incident where your mom ran into, in, in Nigeria, we call them area boys. And you said your mom, you run into these area boys and hail them. And on, and then you won't believe that there was a time that there was a, an assassination attempt yes. on your mom. And it was those same boys that your mom used to give a, a listening ear to or she would give them food or money that saved your mom's life. Exactly, exactly. You know, um, my mom taught us how to be humans without sitting us down to teach us. Sorry, she showed us. She showed us how to be humans without teaching us or sitting us down to say this is so many things, so many things that she did. The assassination uh, attempt was was one of them where, for me, listening to that story just completely blew my mind away, you know. Um, So that that's if you think I'm funny, I wish you had met my mom in person. Or if you think I'm personable, it's just, I think there's no, it comes with a joy in life to just being able to just connect with people, regardless of their status, being able to connect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's something I want to touch on before I transition to where I wanted to go. Poetry. I, to be honest with you, look at poetry and sometimes I'm just befuddled by it. But I've also heard people that say people that construct poetry are very deep thinkers. Poetry was poetry helped you to transition to, and you said it really added a lot of value in your life, and that's what helped you to become the student you became in a very fast linear way. What would you say poetry really does that's helped you? And why is it that people say people that appreciate poetry uh, are really deep thinkers for, especially for someone like me that I look at poetry and I'm like go straight to the point why do you have to dance around and dance around to finally reach the, the destination and sometimes they never re- they actually never re- leave the, arrive at the destination it's as if they leave the destination for you the reader to, to take wherever you want to go and that's exactly what you've just mentioned um, they, they when you read I mean I'm, I'm a student of classical poetry um uh, and you know when you see and this, the poetry that I speak of right now, it's not the um, you know it's sometimes it's 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 similar to spoken word but not entirely. Um, poetry. One thing I loved about I loved and I still love about it is you put your interpretation. It's like an artwork when you go to a art gallery. When you're looking at a picture, uh, an abstract art now, for example, you're looking at the picture. Now your eyes connect the dot to what makes sense to you. Now the poet does the poet has his own meaning when he writes something. Now, most poets, you know, rarely do they divulge. This was what I was thinking. You know, sometimes they will tell you what they were thinking, but most just leave it to you, the audience, you know, to make meaning out of it. And that's the most beautiful 
there's no restriction. You know, that you're not in a box of, oh, this must be this, this must be this. You're not in a box. So in poetry, there are stanzas. As you read each stanza, which is four lines per stanza, as you read each stanza, you may get the overall picture of what the poetry is trying to say, but the how you can apply your meaning or your understanding into the how. So now I mentioned that he gave me that platform to really get out of the box, the so-called box that I was put in, you know, um, writing essay or even expressing myself in ways that, 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 that made it the same as other students. Poetry gave me that platform where I could express myself in, port, in, in poetry and give it to Mr. Adeni G or Mr. Adenian Ju, um, the other uh, English teacher. Uh, Ade Somi, yeah. Ade Somi, I remember him. The one that used to dress very well. Oh, yeah. Clean, oh, yeah. clean cut, yes. Yeah. They, they got my work and they understood everything. Like, oh, this is what you're trying to say. Now, they actually found out I was deeper than most of the students in class. The way I was thinking, but I just couldn't express it in English. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. So do, do you still, uh, sorry, I'm, stay, I'm still staying here. Do you still do you still write poetry now? And since you are fluent in Yoruba, can you also write poetry in Yoruba? I'm just in asking because, because you said, you said something here. You said they understood what I was saying, but even though I couldn't express myself. So that means, can you write poetry in Yoruba as well? I've doubled into it as a matter of fact. Oh, okay. Um, I haven't written a lot, but I think I've written one or two. I've dabbled into, into it, but I I still write most of my poetry in English. Yeah. Uh, I see. But I've dabbled right. into writing poetry in Yoruba. Yeah. And is it different? Um, I'll say linguistically deeper. Mm. Interesting. Because now you get to see these Nigerian comedians on YouTube. I'm now embracing Yoruba and saying, you know what? We know who our audience is. And if you want to follow along, here is a subtitle that we are going to do what we are going to do. And even Nigerian musicians now, like, uh, is it Alamide? Yeah. He, 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 he does his Yoruba tracks and he still does his English tracks. So it's almost like I'm capturing the guys I want to capture, but here, here for all of you guys that don't really get it, pretty much. So how did Canada come in your mind? Because in 2001, when I first came to Canada, Canada was not popular. <laughs> Everybody wanted to go to the US, the UK and stuff. So for me, I know how we came to Canada. We came to Canada because dad had a family friend that had their two children here already. That's the exposure we got to Canada. And trust me, I didn't want to come to Canada. I wanted to go to the US. So for you, when did Canada come in your mind and why did you choose Ontario? Um. Great question. So Canada wasn't supposed to be a place for me to come. It was supposed to be U.S. My mother was bent on. And of course, she was very proud of my results from like my senior, from my first year in senior secondary school. till when I graduated, so it's a woman that never really had pride in my academic, you know, uh, performance. All of a sudden now, you know, I was performing really well. So she was bent on, dude, you're not staying in Nigeria for 
university, especially with all of the strike where you are in Nigeria for four years course, but it's taking you seven years course because the professors, the schools decided to strike. So she was bent on not having me stay in Nigeria, no matter what it will cost her or no matter how, um, you know, she had to also. So we, you know, and I understood and I agreed like, okay, you know what? I will go outside of Nigeria, but she wanted me to go to the UK. Uh, the state. Now, the state was completely out of my my list. We actually had a fight over that. Um, I felt like I was beginning to see my own potential for my performance in my senior years in secondary school. I did not want any distraction. As young as I was, I I knew that if I went to a country that will present me some level of distraction that I will be distracted. And I, I, the U.S. was one of them. So and, I... And, and you and you being a people person. Exactly. <laughs> I knew I'll probably join some bad gang or just... So U.S. was cancelled. Like, you could have given me $50,000 when I was 18, then when I was making that decision that no matter what, I would rather stay in Nigeria than to go to the U.S. My mother was bent on the U.S. We had a falling out for two, three weeks. She thought I wasn't appreciative. So she called my godmother. Um, she came and listened to both of us. And she looked at my, my mother. Uh, of course, my mother didn't go. She only finished. She didn't finish uh high school so she didn't really have a good grasp of stats you know until my godmother came and just looked at her like hey look he's right going by the stats canada is actually the kid is right so my mother eventually gave in um so though she had mentioned uk but uk was out of my list because I think when we were when we were in SS2, my mother wanted us to spend a uh, time in uh, in London, and for some reason I just had my feeling about the UK. I wasn't really feeling that decision. I didn't think they were gonna give us visa. That's why. And I told my mother, <laughs> straight up, straight up. <laughs> yeah, I told my mother. Like, I said, look, I'd rather not go to the embassy than you forcing this. My mother, you know, she was like, oh, no, you know, we went, of course, lo and behold, they rejected us, all three of us, myself, my sister, and my mother. It was an embarrassment. I looked dead in her eyes and said, I told you, right from that day, crossed our UK out of my mind. Hmm. So that's why UK was not even a question, because my mother knew UK no matter what. So I decided Canada or Ireland. How did, you, how, did, how did you even hear about Canada, man? Um, just research. I did a lot of research when we finished high school. Like I was one of those kids that spent tons of hours in Corner Cafe. And, you know, mm. for those listening to us, Corner Cafe, uh, that, those were the only places you could access internet. Um, we didn't, uh, I'll say 80% of the house, I mean, household didn't have internet back then. Uh, this was, we're talking 99. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
2000, sorry, 2000. Yeah. They didn't have internet. So I spent tons of my time in Corner Cafe researching. So it was either I went to Dublin or Canada. And luckily for me, one of my neighbor um, had a sister, a older sister in Canada. So I applied to, I think I got admission in 10 schools, including Calgary. Mm. Uh, from Canada, I think Calgary was actually offering me some type of whether it was five thousand or seven thousand uh, dollars bursary, you know. Mm. Um, but I, I I went for Windsor because my neighbor had an older sister that lived there, so they felt like okay, she will keep an eye on me, and I I like that because I wanted to come here and make my mother proud. I didn't want I didn't want to go to a city where you know, or I rather I wanted to go to a city that had somebody that, that could watch over me. Yeah. And so that's why I went to Windsor. And it ties back to your decision about United States. Yeah. You seem to you, you seem to want to be in an environment where no distractions and somebody can be still looking after me in a way. You know, and you are one of those, I, I think, you know, I'm happy to have spent the little time I spent living with my mother which I spent about two years living with my mother uh, before coming to Canada, um, seeing the way she also, this was, a, this was a woman that provided for three generations. Um, the generation before her, which is, you know, our mother, you know, um, she provided for her siblings, provi- them providing for us, just hustling. I understood that, yes, I, I couldn't. Even if I had the opportunity to get it wrong, I couldn't. So that's why at that young age, I wanted to make sure that no matter what, even if I had to look at her in her eyes and, you know, told her, your decision is wrong, I was ready to do that. You know, I was ready to do everything to just make her proud. And, yeah, that's why I ended up in Windsor. I have a question I want to ask, but I don't know if it's uh, sensitive. And basically it's a question. You, I hear your mom a lot, but I don't hear your dad. Wait, your dad was never in the picture? Um, maybe, yeah, he was never in the picture. And I don't blame him for that, um, to be honest. Um, uh, sometimes when I think about it, it's probably as a result of me not making the effort or mm. him lacking the access to me. Mm. You know, things happen between grown folks that I don't like to build the foundation of my life off of being a victim. You know, things happen with grown folks that that's grown folks. Uh, me and my father, we reconnected. I, I, I connected with him when I was 27 and just decided to put everything behind, didn't demand any explanation from him. Just let's, now I've made the effort. Now you have access. Let's start our relationship from here. And I'm happy to say we, we have a relationship. Yeah. Every time I hear 
conversations, every time I have conversations, I hear stuff about one parent home. I can relate because, you know, my own parents parted ways when I was two. So I was raised by my father. And man, being raised by your father as a man, as a guy or as a boy, and I was a very stubborn child. My father also was a very strict man. So there was not this not your side, you know, it was always hard, 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 hard. And you being raised by your mom, and you know how they say mom and their sons. Sometimes they, there's a lot of leeway. And then you get to a certain age as a boy and you feel as if no one can talk to you anymore. And that's when you need a man to basically tell you, I'm still the king in this house, you know? So, yeah. So when I hear you and your mom sometimes butt heads and not talk for three weeks, it just reminds me like that mom and son thinking. Oh, yeah. And, you know, just so you know, my I, I lived with my grandmother most of oh. my... I lived with my grandmother. Um, remember I mentioned to you, uh, my mom being the breadwinner for three generations, she was in Lagos, um, Austin. Why I was with grandma, I mean, uh, I was born within two months, three months. My mother gave me to my grandma because she had to, being the breadwinner, she had to continue working and providing um, uh, uh, my father, they parted ways, I think, when she was pregnant. And and these were childhood lovers, but they parted, parted ways when she was pregnant. So I live with my grandma, um, and my grandma had a... So I have an uncle that's almost the same age as me. Hmm. So that's your why... Mom's, your, your, mom's, your mom's brother? Yes, the last one. Okay, the last one, okay. Yeah, so... It was, uh, so I lived with my grandma. Um, so I had, when I moved to Lagos at 15, I went straight to boarding school because I was in boarding school. I didn't really get to live with my mother. But uh, so the two years that I lived with my mother was, uh, was SS2, SS, yeah, no, more like SS2, SS3. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we lived together two and a half years, three years. And trust me, living with my grandma was the same as living with a man. Like she was, <laughs> was a disciplinarian. Wow. <laughs> Extreme disciplinarian, you know. So I, um, so moving to Lagos, living with my mother just made me realize I had become a man at a young age. And I think my mother saw that. My mother saw that. So we bought her head. And of course, she never really hid it away from me. To, she was always reminding me, look, dude, you know you have a father. <laughs> like every single time we bought her head. And I remember, I think I was, uh, I was 17 when we had some issue, both of us. I was the man of the house. It was myself, my sister, and my mother. But I was the man of the house. Uh, so I remember one day she called my father out of the blue, a man that I had not seen. Um, yeah, that was my second time seeing him in my lifetime. She called him just to show me that, look, you have a father. And, you know, he came. But, yeah. Um, so to answer your question, yes, we I have a relationship with my father now. Um, was he always in the picture? No. As I mentioned earlier, it's probably because it was lack of effort from my end to reach out. And maybe it was lack of access on his end, not having access to me because grown folks have issues. 
and they deal with their issues the way they see fit. Yeah. So now you are in, you are now in you're now in Windsor, University of Windsor. How was your time in University of Windsor before you moved to Calgary? My time in Windsor was uh, the first two years was difficult. Uh, the challenges, the language barrier, and when I say the language, it's just the accent, you know. And remember, I just I just been two years or three years into speaking English. Now moving. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Come to think about it, yeah. Yeah, so I thought I was smart. I thought I was brilliant. Um, going by my results in my secondary, my senior secondary school. Um, I remember my first year in university, I was on academic probation. Uh, yeah, they wanted to kick me out of the university. I remember making a phone call from a Bell payphone. Making a phone call from a Bell year. Um, because of course, financial re- issues. Um, yeah. So by the time I was completely done, I was, I felt like I was at an age, uh, I was at the age where I should be providing for my mother. Like I should give her a break. So I just decided there wasn't any point to go to law school, just continue and fend for myself yeah so that's 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 what i did um moved to calgary and it's been beautiful ever since do you i know you've got a lot of friends that are lawyers when you interact with these people sometimes do you feel as if you would have you should have been one of them no no um i don't i don't I'm very happy with what I'm doing now. Um, Do I one day feel I'll still go to law school? Yes. Really? Yes. Yeah. It is in my bucket list, but I am fully 100% happy with what I'm doing now. Um, I I think... um, I don't regret anything in life. Uh, I learn from every situation. So I don't, I don't regret not going to law school. Um, but it's one of the things that I feel down the road, I'll still fulfill. Okay. So I know what you're currently doing right now, which is where I want to take this conversation to. But I want to stay here with what you just said right now. With what you're currently doing right now, which... I'm, I'm going to allow you to tell the audience shortly. How would being a lawyer help that? Without disclosing what you're currently doing right now, because we want to, we want to talk about that in the next section. But why does this law school or wanting to still be a lawyer still stay there? Especially because, let's be honest, we're now in our 40s. We're not young, we're not young anymore. Uh, the retention is not the same when, as you're young. And of course, law school takes a lot of reading and a lot of retention and stuff. Um, I don't think being a lawyer will help or not help what I'm doing right now. Um, you know, there, there, there are those childhood interests that sometimes they still linger on. Like, it's just a bucket list. You know, it's like wanting to climb Mount Everest, you know, that's in your bucket list. 
if you don't climb it, you don't, nothing really happens to you. It's not greatly significant, but it's something that you will love to. So going to law school and being a lawyer is a would be nice mm. that I feel like it's in, it's been in my bucket list since I was very young and yeah, that's why, but it wouldn't really make any major impact on what I'm doing now because yeah, what I'm doing now, we pay lawyers. So do you have an idea when you would like to start this item in this bucket list? Or, or it's still it's still it's still vague right now. It is still it is still vague to be honest. It is still vague right now. Um, I'm committed and focused at what I'm doing right now. That um, I, I don't want to be distracted. But being a lawyer is still a bu- It's still in my bucket list. Very well. So we are going to uh, take our second water break here with uh, Lanry and uh, we look forward to having you with us uh, when we resume. So we're back with Lanry and uh, this is a section of my conversation that I've really wanted to have uh, a chat with Lanry about because I was a little bit part of the genesis when we had that lunch together and it's amazing what he has done so far since then. So Larry, you were with an oil and gas company making good money. A lot of people in Calgary, by the way, if you're listening to this conversation and you're not familiar with the geopolitics of Canada, uh, where we are living in Calgary is where the oil and gas industry is, uh, is, is, is located in. And trust me, a lot of people in this city or in this province want to get into the oil and gas industry. And here is my friend working in an oil and gas industry, making good money, and then we went out for one of our lunches like we used to normally do because we, we were walking in the same building, Stock Exchange Tower. And we went for lunch and then you shared with me the idea. So, t- t- so, t- so t- take the audience to that conversation. How did this idea even come into your, your mind? Well, um, I, I'm happy you actually remember that conversation. Um, so how did the idea come to mind? Um, working nine to five in oil and gas. Yes, you're right. I was making good money, um, but I wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't satisfied. Um, there were many times, um, I don't know if I even shared this, those stories with you. There were many times I'll go into my office and close the door for the first 15 minutes. I will cry and just speak with God that to find, to, you know, to, to give me a direction. Um, I didn't feel like I was doing something that was fulfilling for me. Uh, so, but the moment I started doing it, something about it was when was back in 2013 or 2014 around there. Um, I decided to start using my vacation period to travel. Um, was actually a very good friend of ours, uh, Damola Delacun, the son of our proprietress. Correct, yes. Yes. Uh, that invited me on my first trip uh, to Asia uh, to just 
I went there without having any business idea in mind. Um, but just to take you, you know, to take you back, prior to coming to Calgary from Windsor, I I was running uh, 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 men's accessories uh, business. I was doing okay. tie cufflinks. Uh, prior to that, I used to be one of those kids in university. But again, because there was, I had financial issue. I had to in university. I had some financial issues. I had to start making money um, while I was in university. So I was one of those students that would carry duffel bags around. I sold everything. Women on the way. I'm telling you a fact. And there's wow. still some girls here in Calgary that still remembered me coming to their homes and trying to sell them women on the wear stilettos. Name it. I sold it. Uh, red monkey jeans. I remember back then we'll go out. Me and my best friend talks. We'll go out. We were business partners together. We'll go out to the club and there will be like about 20 guys wearing our products. 50% of them are not finished paying, but you see them buying drinks. So, you know, just doing business, I was, uh, I was entrenched in doing business then, especially clothing business, as my mother did in Nigeria. Mm. Um, so I did that from that, did uh, opened, registered a custom I'm a men's accessory company in Windsor before I moved here. So mm-hmm. I, I, I tasted what it was like to be an entrepreneur, you know, mm. in Windsor. So I guess that was probably the trigger for me not being satisfied with a nine to five, despite the money or, you know, the money I was making in oil and gas. Um, and we had that conversation, um, and luckily for me, I say luckily for me for a reason, I had uh, used two years of my vacation period prior to uh, getting laid off uh, to explore the world, looking for opportunities. So April 12th, 2016, luckily for me, I got laid off uh, from my oil and gas job. Um, so I got laid off at the right time, you know, you are the, the way I like to say this, when I tell this story, I like to use the Isaac Newton's, uh, the law of gravity, uh, theory, um, when he sat under the apple tree, under the apple tree and the apple fell on his head and came up with that law of gravity. Um, I tell people. So many people are sat under that same apple tree and apple fell on their heads. They never came up with the law of gravity. This man was able to come up with that law based on the way he had, been, he had prepared himself, the books he had read, the experiences and so many, so many things he had done that he made sense when that apple fell on his head to come up with that law of gravity. And I'll tell you my Isaac Newton story of what I do now. You have played a major role in it. One of my very first book that I read, Getting to Plan B by Randy Commissar, you recommended that book. I remember I was in Windsor. It was back in 2009. Those were some of the things 
when I put all of those together, they formed an integral particles that build what I'm doing right now. Hmm. Wow, it's amazing that I just uh, recommended the book, but I didn't know that it would have an influence in your life. So the first country you went to in Asia, and I like the fact that you talked about travel because this show is all about travel as well and how uh, I feel that travel is still is one of the best educations out there. Which, where, what, which, which country was that in Asia that you went to? Um, it was China. Um, so I went to China for uh, a trade fair. It's actually the biggest trade fair in the world in Guangzhou. Um, so I was in Guangzhou uh, that year. And I remember after that, that was like, I think April, April 2014 or April 2015. Uh, then I went again the, in October. Of the same of 2015 as well. Yeah. Then so this show, this show, this show happens twice a year. Twice a year. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I went back to back, then went again 2016, April. Immediately I got laid off, a week after I got laid off. Why did you make that trip after you laid off? That does not make sense most times for people that think normally. When when you get laid off, people want to conserve cash. They don't want to spend cash. They don't want to spend cash until they start having interviews. Wow. So, <laughs> so you are doing something not what people typically do or what, what same people will tell you, that's not a wise move. Why did you spend that cash that you didn't know when the next cash was coming to go to a trade fair? That's a wonderful question. Now, listen to this carefully. Now, the downtown in the Calgary, the oil and gas economy started around 2014. Um, the, the crash of oil and gas started like late 2014. Now, I remember the first round of layoff was around that period, okay? Um, I had uh, planned my trip, bought the tickets and everything. So I wasn't around during the first round of layoff. That was about 2015, early 2015. I wasn't around because I, I had planned my trip. And for me, yeah. you know, they consider if you're not around, you're less likely to get laid off. Um, so the first round of layoff, I was not around. The second round of layoff, I was not around. Now, those trips were booked prior to layoff announcements. Mm. Now, 2016, April, my trip was planned before they announced I mean, yeah, 2015, my trip was planned before they announced the layoff. Now, the one that my trip was not planned before the layoff, but I knew I wanted to travel. And I had told my supervisor that, oh, I'll be taking these days off, but I had not put it in, in the calendar. Mm -hmm. So they made the announcement that they will be doing a round of layoff in April. So the money was already saved to take that trip. So I just booked the trip, This, you know, regardless whether I was going to be a part of the layoff. So I booked the trip, I think a day or two after they announced the layoff because I had already planned it and the money for that trip was already set aside. Hmm. And that was the layoff I did not escape. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So basically, 
all these other two times that the layoffs happened, you were always away. So it was like, uh, we don't see him. So we're not, we'd, it's almost like he's not around. And yeah. then you're now around and they're walking by the office and they see you and they're like, mm, cuts X. Interesting. So, so, so now you go to China three times. Is it going to this trade fair that idea started to come to your head on the creation of what you're currently running right now, Farihara? Yes. So the first time I went with my friend, um, there was no business idea. We just like, okay, let's go there, look around. Then I made contacts with different suppliers. Now, the second time, now I went with a blank slate. I, you are, I believe the mind, the mind can only think to the extent that the eyes have seen. You know, sometimes you see things on TV, um, but what your eyes have seen face to face, your mind can take it from there and think further than that. Mm-hmm. That's why it's good to be well-traveled. What, once you have seen some things, your mind, now the starting point, the foundation of your mind to start thinking is what your eyes have seen face to face. Now, the mind just takes it to the next level. So my first trip to that uh, place, there wasn't any business idea. Let's talk. Second time, I made an intentional decision that I was going there again to just look. Even if there was any business idea that came to mind, I shut it. I shut those business ideas out. And the third time that I went there, I went there, met tons of suppliers in the clothing industry, in different industries. Then from China, I went to another country in Asia. And that was where the apple fell on my head. <laughs> um, as, okay. soon as, as soon as I got to that country and the apple fell on my head, every single thing made sense. All the suppliers, all... Everybody that I had met to three trips prior just made sense. And I saw an opportunity and decided to pursue it. Uh, so I got laid off April 12, 2016, started Fire Yara, my current business, um, June 2016. So they, they, there's a part of the story that I want you to share with the audience, if you if it's okay with you. When you were telling me how you were looking for these suppliers and you were going to some very dingy places. And now I, I see the work you produce, but people don't know that sometimes to get to this place, you need to go to these dingy places. And, and you're a tall guy. And then I remember you telling me, you I sometimes I have to squat down because people in Asia are not tall, really. So for them, it's just like they can even run by the same space. So can you share those dingy places you went to establish network and your supply chain and everything that you put together? Yeah, I remember the first um, first factory. Um, I think I shared that picture on my Instagram where we started producing. Um, oh, my God. It was what you call a sweat shop. Um, so hold a second, hold a second. What? So, so you, that, you, are, you that are in the clothing game, what is this sweatshop thing I hear about? Is it a place that people are really sweating and it looks very inhumane? Is that why they call it a sweatshop? I would not go to the extent of saying inhumane, but like 
it wasn't conducive. You know, it's not a conducive place for that someone like me, someone like you will be for straight one hour. Now imagine some people walking in there for like eight to 12 hours nonstop. Um, and of course, there's a reason why they call it sweatshop, like literally sweating. If you go to that, my um, Instagram page, you will see me there sweating. I remember that was uh, our first, first factory. Mm-hmm. And it was true. It was in a, in a very shitty neighborhood in that country where, you know, you had to go through Hallies. Um, but honestly, thinking back, those are some of the experiences I cherish. Uh, when I look at where we are now as a company, um, those are the, you know, the, the, the fabrics that strengthen um, the, 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 the core value of our company now. Just thinking back and just looking at where we are, it, it makes us to want to offer nothing but quality to our clients because we've been through and you know it allows us when we meet some uh, suppliers whatever they want to supply us now you can see you can see the difference in quality and you can almost look at some product and say i know where this was made <laughs> mm, mm. yeah so yeah so my question now is going back to the genesis of farihara you didn't have a mentor that was holding your hand to tell to teach you the textile industry, the clothing game, and everything. Even though your mom was in the clothing game in Nigeria, you were in the accessories game in Windsor. So literally, it seems as if again back to the, the apple did not fall far from the tree. You picked up your mom's personality of being this people person, but it seems as if you also picked up where your mom left off with clothing. Literally, there is no mentor holding your hands and and introducing their roller decks to you and their network to you. How did you build this Rolodex? Like you, you arrive in this country. Did you have an agent that held your hand and said, let me take you to these factories and start introducing you to these people? Like, how did you do that? Especially because you, you have not been to these places before, literally. Yeah. Um, you are know, coming from where we both come from. Um, so I, I guess to sort of make you and the audience understand more. When I was in Nigeria, um, I mentioned earlier that I became a man at a younger age. Um, At 16, I was helping my mother with uh, with her clothing business. Uh, She was selling clothes and jewelry. I'll be the one to go to the airport, interact with, you know, folks bringing the, the goods from other countries. So that interaction and it, some of the business acumen I already had, which was why it was easy for me to sell things on campus. It was easy for me to interact with uh, suppliers from different parts of the world during the height of eBay days. Um, mm. Back then, you know, my friends, some of my friends still call me LL Kim online because that was my eBay name. Uh, was that LL Kim? Online, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So right. 
that helped me. So it was uh, it was more of a skill transfer. You know, I believe, again, going back to being a personable person, no matter where you put me in this world, I will always interact with people. Um, and I'll always interact. I'll always break the ice, um, interact with people in such a way that it makes them feel comfortable. And I think those uh, strengths helped me uh, in many countries that I went to. Mm-hmm. Um, including the taxi driver from the airport, they were very happy to point me in the right direction when I expressed what I, you know, what I was looking for. So again, the power of just being personable—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a universal—it's a universal language of treatment mm. that a lot of people appreciate. Um, yes, I didn't have a mentor. Um, but our company right now is where we are now because of the work that myself and my business partner have put into this. Uh, my business partner, we came together. Um, I started, you know, in 2016. Uh, we came together in that, that year, actually, uh, but we didn't officially register the company until 2017. Now, he had been in the industry uh, longer than me. He was working for another company here. So he brought that uh, technical ability. I brought the business side of things and also a bit of technical knowledge, but he brought more of the technical knowledge into the company and, you know, once we spoke, I remember I was actually in uh, going to our first factory when we spoke on video call about making this happen. Um, we had been, you know, talking a few months prior, but it wasn't until I traveled and I was about to go to the factory to see uh, some of my guys in the factory that we actually had a one-on-one video call to say, yes, let's make this happen. So um, I, I would not take the credit uh, but myself. Uh, it's, it's, it's the work that Richard and myself have put into this business. That's what has made us to be where we are now. So I, while you were talking, the question that I wanted to ask you was, can you take me back to that first feeling you had when someone reached out and commissioned you guys to do a project for them, either the wedding or was it was your first ever client, a wedding client, or was it just a one-off uh, person saying, just make me one suit for now? And how, how, how was that feeling when, when the money entered the bank account? You know, um, let me see, who was my first client, as a matter of fact? I can tell you our, our first wedding client uh, is a friend of mine, Wally, uh, Wally Johnson was our first wedding clients here in Calgary. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, and so luckily for me, I was already dressing the part when I was working in the oil and gas. And <laughs> people, people knew me for my style. So it wasn't difficult to convince somebody, you know, mm-hmm. um, to buy something from, from us, especially suits. 
So, but, you know, then when the money came, I, I was a bit surprised that, so this is, this has become business, you know, and quickly I was, I realized that this was going to be the future moving forward. The first clients made me realize this is it. You will go all in. And that's what I did when immediately I got laid off and the compensation or whatever they were giving, I put everything on it. Credit card, empty everything. I went all in because as Steve Avi will say, if you don't leap, if you don't jump, you will never know your strength. You will never know how far you can go. You can't. So I, I jumped. Mm. I jumped without parachutes, but I knew that yes, I wasn't going to crash. Mm. Mm. The vision, the vision for Farihara in 2016. What was it, and has it changed now in 2022? Or are you still, are you guys, are you guys still riding on that same vision of 2016? Um, I think we the vision for Farihara from. Uh, 2016. It is still the same vision. Um, with with uh, um, what we've done is we've tweaked it a little bit, but the overall vision is still the same thing, which is to make the the brand uh, household name, to have fire locations in different part of Canada, to have people from different parts of the world wearing uh, garments. Mm. Uh, I, to have layers of confidence to mm. the ones that our clients already have. We have not veered away from that, either you know, through the services that we provide or through the, uh, through the, quality, the quality of, of our work and also making sure that at the same time we stay true to ourselves and knowing that yes we are we are africans first hence the name fiery hair um staying true to our heritage and that's why with our brand you will see heritage collection you know um so just staying true to ourselves and just offering the best service and that's one of the things our clients love the most so if uh you does farhara only make clothing for men or do you guys make clothing for women as well so that's one of the tweet that we did um we started the company focusing on men um but we've sort of um tweaked it now we, we make for women uh uh, we make for we do custom women's uh, suits. We've made for tons of women. We've made for TV shows, you know, uh, in Canada for women. So we, yes, we do women now, but that wasn't always part of the vision. Mm, because I, I've heard tailors say, especially male tailors say, or male designers say, making clothing for women is not the same like making for men because men are just so easygoing. I, 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 do you experience the same thing? 100%, 100%. But, you know, um, 
And when I say it's not easy, it may not necessarily be the same thing as other people. Uh, so when it comes to fashion, women are way ahead of us, ahead of men, when it comes to fashion, in terms of style, in terms of the way the garments, uh, the way the garments are cut. And so they are way ahead of us. So you will find that it's, it's not as easy to make custom garments for women, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible. It is possible. It just takes more time. Um, they know what they want more than we men sometimes. Um, they want everything to be precise. Um, so it takes it takes the right company, especially custom uh, suits or custom uh, company to be able to be confident enough to want to make women uh, clothing, custom women clothing. But we've been able to do that. Um, it's it's not easy, but we've 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 been able to do that. Mm. So if someone listening to this thinks of Farihara, what should they think of when they want to approach Farihara from a clothing standpoint? Is it only suits for men and for women a dress or what else do you guys offer? So um, if someone listening to this, uh, when they think of Farihara, um, the first thing is any you can buy clothes anywhere. You can buy custom suits anywhere, custom clothes anywhere. Um, if you... We've noticed people want more than just the clothes. Um, the ability to meet people where they are. Not every single person wants want to wear you know, the same or wants their suits designed the same. Being able to sit down, if you're looking for a company that will sit down with you, have conversation with you about how you're going to be wearing these garments, who your audiences are, where you are going to be wearing these garments to. You want the full custom experience, that personable, you know, there's got to be a personal touch. If you're looking for a company that will listen to you and be there for you from when we measure you to when you come for triumph fitting and do any alteration when necessary, we want to make sure that we are there for you at every point of your life, whether uh, on Tuesday morning when you have a presentation at work and you want to look your best or, you know, um, at a wedding, your wedding or at a social gathering. Um, so, and we do everything, uh, whether it be custom suits, shirts, overcoat, name it, we can make it happen for you. So when I think of Farihara, think of customized, not off the rack. Yeah. Ah, got it. Now we, so to, we do sometimes do ready to wear, but seasonal, uh, mostly in the summertime. So what I'm wearing right now, and I know you guys at home cannot see, this is one of our ready to wear collection that something you could just get online we have we have some of those but the our business model is always going to be custom mm. so i noticed that you said something was almost like correcting me but i want to make sure if you were correcting me 
I said off the rack and you said ready to wear. In the fashion world that you are, is off the rack below ready to wear or basically they are the same thing? Or you're just trying to be, you're trying it's to be finesse? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Off the rack, ready to wear. You know, the lang- those languages are very, uh, they're synonyms of each other. Um, but, you know, um, custom and bespoke, totally different. Mm. I was told that bespoke is actually higher than custom. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bespoke is, is, is next level. So with bespoke, even the fabric that is being used, even the fabric is that is being used can be custom to, 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 to the person. Let me give you an example. Remember the uh, McGregor's fights? Uh, I think there was a yes, fight. Yes, with Floyd, Floyd, Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, that he wore the FU. That fabric was made. You know, so now that's mm. bespoke. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, hold a second. Just a press pause. You mean when you say made, it was almost like it went back to the meal and yeah. chose everything from the meal. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Now, there are layers of bespoke. Now, there's another layer where, okay, there's already ready, ready fabric. Okay. Now, the customization, bespoke customization takes longer. And it's way more expensive, way more expensive. Sometimes it takes about seven to 10 try-ons to get a suit that is just for you. Yeah. Hmm. Does Farihara double is bespoke at all? We do custom. And what we do, our, our custom is very similar to bespoke, um, but you, you pay custom price. Um, so we take like over 20 to 25 measurements and we make the garments based. So there's only one person that could wear whatever that we make, which is you. We make the garments, then we have a try on fitting. Um, our turnaround is four to six weeks. We have a, we have a try on fitting Then you come once it's ready, you try it on. If there's any alteration that we see, even the ones that you don't see, we recommend alteration and we take care of the alteration. So you're always getting bespoke, but it is custom. Ah, I see. All right. So we are going to take our final water break and we're going to uh, come back. And uh, Larry, man, I want to be, thank you. You've been very generous with your time. And then I'm just going to ask a few more questions on Farihara. And then we're going to segue to the topic that I really enjoy asking people. So I'm back with uh, Larry and uh, we he was sharing with us about Farihara and uh, how you, the audience, if you ever want to engage the brand, how you perceive the brand in terms of what you can get from it. And I'm privy to this and I'm going to bring it to your attention now. This man just came back from the fashion capital of the world, which is Milan. And I remember when he told me he was about to go to Milan, I was like, hey, Farihara don't start to do big things. Though. If you're listening to this and you just heard that, that's speech in English, by the way. So, Larry, how was Milan and why did Farihara decide to go to Milan from where you guys have come from back in 2016 in these dingy places that you went to? Um, Milan, Milan was beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, there is a reason why they call it uh, fashion capital of the world. Um, uh, it's, it, it, it's a city of luxury. Uh, it's a city of luxury, and it's uh, 
it's got a culture it's it's got a luxury culture so uh why did we go to milan um honestly uh for richard and myself we are all we don't we don't believe in just being comfortable where we are i mean with all the things that we have achieved with this brand uh we believe that there are still more things to achieve uh now there's no better place to go see brands that are doing way better uh than us uh some of the brands that we look up to uh to see how they present themselves uh so that that's why we went to milan and more specifically there was a trade fair in milan which was the primary reason that we went to milan it was for the trade fair but we also wanted to see how other brands that we look up to you know present themselves uh, and uh, we had the opportunity to do that uh we had the opportunity to network uh meet uh more people from the industry um yeah it was a uh, it was a great trip mm. and um i'm asking this question because i mean i've created a business myself before and nobody ever tells you this and most times people don't want to admit it but um I think it's a question I like to ask people that have created something. It's now eight years of running Farihara. Still enjoy it? I love it. Oh, it's uh, six years, by the way. Uh, six, yes, sorry, six years. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Saying that you're still going to be around by 2024. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Honestly, um, I can't even lie. This has been the best decision that I've made in a while. Um, starting something and just watching it grow. And it's not all rosy. It wasn't always rosy. It wasn't rosy living uh, a, good, a good career uh, in oil and gas. I could have gotten another job, uh, but I stopped with Fariara. It wasn't always rosy. I remember, you know, years that we were not paying ourselves, years that myself and my business partner had other side gigs while we were running our main gig, which was Fire Hour. Uh, we weren't paying ourselves. We weren't making any money. Uh, we were investing the money back into the business. Um, many of our peers thought we were crazy. Um, and uh, it was actually the height of when I had a child and I had a family. And just to go through those stages, the, the early phases of starting something and just sticking with it. One thing that this, this has really taught me is being resilient, uh, knowing that there's nothing you cannot achieve when, you know, once you focus doing it so yes i will i am still enjoying it and i will still be enjoying it in the next 20 years in the next 30 years because fire is going nowhere we plan to make the company bigger than this uh just watching something that's it's like watching the fruit you know something that you planted watching it grow it's beautiful that in itself is poetry 
Oh, words. All right. Um, you said something here. Being a father, I have never been a father before. I intend to be a father in the next couple of years. God, you're hearing. Amen. How, amen. How is amen? Thank you. How is it like raising a son, especially seeing <laughs> seeing the way you used to butt heads with your mom sometimes? You, you know, I raising a son. I don't. I, I, I don't want to fall in that category of it's not easy. Um, if one thing that I've learned, patience. Patience is one thing that I've learned because, you know, we have our ideas of how we want our children to be from a young age. Sometimes the school we want them to go, the how we want them to grow out, we want them to be in school, present themselves. And you can quickly start planting the seed for, for your own frustration if you don't have the patience because um, kids, they come with different character. They come, it's, they're not 100% of you. They are 50% of you, 50% of the other person. Now, within the 50% of you, there are certain percentage that they take from. So it's having patience and just, you know, Ayo has really made me understand the importance of patience. I was actually hanging out with him today. We're just joking in the car and just watching him, you know, speak and watching him joke with me um it's 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 a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing so if anything that i've learned is to be patient what you want them to be they will surely be more than that just having some patience yeah mm. so i love this uh section which is about failures i'm a very big person about failures and how you rebound from it i in my family, they call me the comeback kid. And uh, my sister was just telling me the other day, she's like, you are almost the comeback kid part three now. So for you, you have a failure that really destabilized you and you felt as if this is it. And how did you rebound from that? Um, I've had different failures that destabilized me. Um, I, I jokingly say... It's almost like I have a romantic relationship with failure. <laughs> it, it, it is. It is the honest truth. Uh, I, and I can't, I can't speak to one specific one because I felt I feel like most of my failures have sort of set me back. Um, for example, um, and of course, I've learned from each one. Again, I try not to regret anything in life. I learn from, you know, many things. Um, coming to this country and uh, waiting eight years, nine years to get my permanent residence, I couldn't work. There was no, I couldn't do anything. Uh, I think it was it was one failure that hit me hard. I lost a girl that I loved because of that. Um, 
there's so many things that happened because I just was not, I couldn't do anything. My future was on old. Couldn't go to school because I didn't have the right papers. Almost, well, got sent deportation letter. So many things happened during that time that I called my, my, my failure uh, time. But I learned, I learned a lot from it. Um, I learned a lot from it. Uh, the man that I am right now uh, is as a result of so many things I learned from those failures. And I still, I still expect to fail in some things that I dabble into. You know, mm. um, for me, life is not defined by what is presented to you. It's how you respond mm. to mm. things that happen to you. And I think so far, I have responded graciously. Uh, and the, some of the lessons that I owe dearly with me right now are the ones I learned from those failures. Mm. The second to last question is, uh, what parting thoughts would you share with the audience based on your story, based on all the experiences you've picked up so far? especially based on what you just talked about just lastly about your own failure? Um, if I can leave anything with the audience, I will say this. In anything that we do in life, um, always look at your glass, not our full, full, no matter what you're going through, make sure your glass is full. And the way I apply that to my life is, I try not to set myself up for failure or for frustration, because the greatest gift you can have in life is your mental state. Mm. Don't, mm. Set, don't set too high of a standard. Don't intentionally set a standard that you know you cannot get to because you can set it, but you have to know yourself. And what I mean by make sure your glass is always full, learn to change the size of your glass at the right time. Hmm. That way you don't plant seeds of frustration in your mind. Because the way, once you start planning seed of frustrations, you set too much of a high standard for yourself and you're not able to achieve it. It's the way you respond to you not being able to achieve it. That is what life is about. Life is not about whether you get to that which you have set for yourself. It's about how you respond to what happens. You know, they say shoot for the stars. I, yeah, shoot for the stars. But if you land among the moons, you better land with good energy because you never know which one of those in that moon that has the right map to the stars. So always be gracious. The way you respond to life is what defines life itself. It's not what is thrown at you. Make sure your glass is always full. Learn to change the glass of your 
I mean, the size of your glass at every situation you find yourself. Mm. That's all I want to leave you with. I think uh, if I wanted to even just add to that, I'm like the glass that you change to make sure it has a handle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because because glasses that have handle are really big. You know, you and I, you know, mental health is it's 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 important in like in this life we live now. And why is it all of a sudden important? Because we have put ourselves in the prison of, you know, in our own self-prison of different things. And we've never, I don't think the world has ever embraced people coming out to say they actually have mental issues they have to deal with. It's now that all of these things are coming out because we've always put everything within. You know, some of the things that we ought to have done, you know, some of the, you know, some people, when you go into the reason for their mental issue, they're not more than what we've discussed. How you bounce back, how you became the comeback kid. That's your response to things that have happened to you. And those are the only ways we can set our minds free. Those are the only ways that we can deal with our mental health. So for me, I expect to fail in whatever that I do, but I know how to respond well to those failures. Mm. And if I wanted to just add that, I had a conversation with someone two days ago who is going to be coming on the show. He's already actually on the show. It's just that we're going to publish his episode shortly here. And he said something that was very powerful. And I think the reason why mental health is in the forefront now is pandemic happened and it made us realize that we are social beings. And when you try to take us away from communicating, not just on the phone, but being in the same place with one another and stuff, that's who we are. And this guy said something. He said, have you ever had someone commit suicide when they're with someone? They always commit suicide alone. A man will commit suicide when his wife is not around. So I think just to buttress on what you said, be with people. <laughs> because mental health is real, man. That's, 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 that's all I can, you know, that's all I can leave anybody listening to this with, um, because as long as you remain, you remain alive, you wake up tomorrow and you're alive, there's nothing that you cannot do. Mm. That thing that you feel like you should have done 10 years ago, you can do it. Mm. So just always, and you can't be alive if you don't address mental, you know, mental health issues. So let's just make sure we remain positive. We respond to any obstacles, failure, whatever be it, disappointment. It's the way we respond to it that matters the most. You are, it's been amazing spending this time with you. Thank you for having me on the show. I really enjoy, you know, having a chat with you. Not only being on the show, but just having a structured conversation with my long-term friends. So thank you so much. No worries, man. And if uh, people wanted to get a hold of you or get a hold of Farihara and still continue your, watching your story and your journey, how, how can they find you guys? Um, the best way you can find, you can always find us on Instagram. Um, first of all, I'll tell you our website is Farihara. Now, 
the Fariara, the name Fariara is, is derived from Safari Sahara. So when you take out the SA from Safari, you get Fari. If you take out the SA from Sahara, you get Hara. Now put them together, farihara.com. That's our website. Um, you can always get in touch with us. Um, and our Instagram handle is fari underscore Hara. Uh, um, yeah, you can find us on uh, Instagram. Um, or you can always contact UI. It will know how to point you in the right direction. Larry, it was a pleasure. Thanks for coming and, and thank you for being on the show and uh, same pause to your customers just to have this chat with me on, on a weekday as well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this. No worries, man. Take care now. Right. Cheers. Another episode has successfully come to an end. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with the guests. And um, if you did, Please don't forget to subscribe to the show, uh, depending on which uh, podcast directory you're listening to um, this um, show or episode on. Um, also share with a friend. And lastly, uh, remember to also go to the website to subscribe to the Three Nuggets Wednesday. From time to time, I do share a free newsletter link on the social media such as WhatsApp, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. That way you can take a gander of uh, the newsletter and see what the content is like. And uh, that way you can peruse it before you subscribe and get to know if it's adding value to your life or not. With that being said, as I like to always end every conversation I have with most of my friends and with you, do something crazy and take some risk this week. Have a great one. Enjoy yourself. Take care. Bye-bye.